good morning. How are you? Lots of familiar faces, some new ones. Uh, let me just do a quick intro. If you've never met me before, my name is Brent Thomas. Uh, I am the student discipleship pastor at Gospel City Church in South Bend, Indiana. But um, last, I just got a notification, like, you know, social media will remind you, hey, a year ago, here's what you were doing. Uh, last year, on June 22nd, I packed up a U-Haul from Rochester, Minnesota, and moved to South Bend. Um, because I'd spent the last 10 years pouring in here in Rochester, Minnesota, was a part of this church, and super grateful for Pastor Steve and the way he poured into me and all of those opportunities that I've had here. So it's good to be back. I said, you know, it's the first time I've been back in a year uh, with you, Lift Church, um, but I was talking to somebody in the lobby, and it's like, it feels like it's been 20 years because the last year just kind of feels that way. Um, so it definitely feels a lot uh, like it's been a long time, but I'm grateful to be here this morning. And uh, excited to bring God's word to you. So if you've got a Bible, I pray you do. Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about success. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, kind of in the summer months, June, July, my email inbox starts to just get flooded with all the like, hey, how you doing on your New Year's resolutions? You're six months in to 2021. Like, are you, are you getting after it? How's your goals? Because why, do, why does my email inbox get flooded with those? Because everybody knows about six months into the year, you start to fall off those resolutions. Um, so if you'd be willing to be vulnerable, like how many of you made a New Year's resolution this past year? Like you're like, hey, here's some goals I have, some things I'm gonna do. Anybody? No, but just me up here trying to be better. You all just good how you are. Cool. Okay, a few people. How, how many of you are like crushing it? Still on those resolutions, <laughs> right? No hands at that. And that's that's the true honesty. Um, and I think that's funny. Here, here's some research that I, I found. As many as 50% of adults in the United States make a New Year's resolution. And that number coming out of 2020, going into 2021, skyrocketed to 75%. People are like, hey, I'm going to do something different this year, right? So that's a number of 188.9 million adult Americans said, I'm going to learn a new skill, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to um, be a better person. And we all want that, especially this last year, because people want to be a success. Nobody's like, hey, failure, probably my favorite thing in the world. I love to fail. It's great. No, we all are striving for success, some form of success in our life. But the surprising truth is that of those 188.9 million adult Americans, the statistics show that only 10% will last more than a couple months in that resolution, and even less will get through all of the year like, yep, stayed with it, stuck to my goals. And so I kind of get that way, like into the summer where I start to think like, you know, I'm trying on my swimsuit and I'm like, oh, that's why I wanted to start a diet in January, you know. <laughs> or I look at my bank account and I'm like, oh, I didn't save nearly as much money as I thought I was going to save for that vacation in the summer. Oh, man. Right? And so you kind of get reminded of like, man, I want to be a success. I want to do these things. And the self-help industry booms right now with books and podcasts and tips and tricks about ways to be successful. You want to improve your health? Follow these five key areas of life. You want to make more fun money? Here's four actions you can take today. You want a better relationship? Start these six habits. Follow us, like, subscribe, donate, click here. There's experts everywhere screaming at you that they can help you in your journey towards success. 
Now hear me when I say that. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to set goals for yourself. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go and follow some people and look to certain people to help you grow in areas of your life. But what I want us to see in God's word today is that if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, there are some resolutions, there are some choices, there are some actions you should take that have nothing to do with what the world says about success. And there are some experts that you should learn from that are not releasing a new book or asking you to like and subscribe to their channel. One of those experts is the Apostle Paul. So in your Bibles, open to the letter of Philippians. Here's a little context. Philippians is full of rich insight and perspective on how to have success that transcends just from this life into the next life. And we're going to camp out in chapter 2, but first I want you to see Paul's impressive worldly resume of success in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. So just across the page on uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul's rebuking some legalistic religious leaders in this letter. He's, they're rebuking them for preaching a false doctrine of circumcision to the church in Philippi. And as a way for him to emphasize his authority, saying, I have the right to rebuke you in this area, he lists his credentials that would have made the Pope jealous in Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was born in the right family, had the right friends, went to the right school, had the right job, lived on the right side of the tracks. He was a Jewish superstar. He would have been the most followed person on social media in the religious world today. He, everything in that culture would see him, Paul, as like the top dog. He was crushing it. He had success. And then Paul met someone named Jesus. And everything changed for him in an instant of blinding light. Look at verse 7. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I love that language that Paul uses in describing success as it relates to the world. He goes to familiar accounting terms, right? And so, so many of us understand this when we look at our own personal budgets or if you uh, have a job that interacts with a budget at all, there is a profit column and there is a loss column. And the whole goal of every single person who's ever held a dollar bill in their hand is to say, how much can I get in that profit column and how much can I avoid numbers being in the loss column? We have a whole holiday dedicated to the idea of businesses getting back in the black on Black Friday. The goal is to accumulate as much as you can because in our mind, the higher the number, the more it means success. And here's Paul listing out his credentials, and every single person in that culture would have said, man, those are all prophets, man. You're crushing it. Keep that all in that area. And he, in one moment, says, no, but Jesus, and moves all of that over into a lost column. It does, it's, it's actually hindering him. It's not just that Paul met Jesus and realized, man, I have some really good things in my life, and Jesus is just a little bit better. He realized that everything that he had viewed as success in his life was hindering him. 
it was a loss to him because it was giving him a false sense of success. Compared to Jesus, his religiosity meant nothing. It didn't get him in good standing with God. It didn't accomplish salvation for him. Jesus was the only prophet he had. And that's redefining success. As followers of Christ, we need to understand that the true success in our life does not depend on our accomplishments and actions. It depends on Jesus' accomplished action on the cross. Jesus is the only reason you can look at your life as a success. And hear me, while that is our foundation, it is not our rationalization. Meaning you can't say, yeah, Jesus, so I, I, I don't got to do anything. I can just sit back, lean back, enjoy life, coast through, because Jesus did all the work, so that's, that's cool. No. The fact that you and I are breathing and we're on this earth right now means God wants you to have success in this life and the life to come. But if you're going to do that, you have to redefine what success looks like. We need to view success through the perspective of Jesus Christ. And like most things, when it comes to how Jesus sees them, it is completely countercultural. It's not like those emails in your inbox saying, hey, time for a summer of success. Jesus is going to change that. That's what Paul discovered. It radically changed the direction of his life. It changed his actions. It changed the way he got up in the morning and thought through his day. And it can do the same for us. From that moment on, the moment he met Jesus, from that point, his life's mission was to help others come to the same realization. So in this letter to the Philippian church, he exhorts them to redefine success through the perspective of Jesus. So here we go, back in chapter 2, look at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul's about to redefine success, but he prefaces it with a plea. The plea is be unified. Stay together. Do not allow division to get in the way of your success for the gospel. Paul's not asking an open-ended question. It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> he knows the answer. Of course there's encouragement. Of course there's comfort. Of course there's participation, affection, and sympathy. So because those things exist from God, when we find ourselves in Christ, those things exist. Complete my joy, he says. Be of the same mind. Think alike. He's going to give a practical way of doing that in chapter 4, verse 8. Here's what Philippians 4, verse 8 says. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. If we were to do that, we would all be of the same mind. If we all made an individual commitment to think on those things, our thinking would be unified. Another translation says, intent on one purpose. I love that when you think about the mission of the church to make disciples, and I know that is true here at Lyft, that you are intent on making disciples. And that's going to look different across the landscape of churches, 
But in the end, we should be intent on that purpose and no other. If anything else starts to fill that gap of, oh, we're intent on X, Y, Z, rather than glorifying God by making disciples, we would not be unified. You want to complete the joy of your pastor here at Lift Church? You want to complete the joy of your leaders? You make every hour of energy that's poured into this place worth it? The time it takes to set up, to tear down, to come together? Complete the joy by having the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and intent on one purpose. Be unified. So that's the motivation. The motivation of what we're going to do in redefining success is not, hey, let's be the best thing we can be. It is, can we be unified in Christ together and find success in that? So Paul implores both you, Lift Church, and the church in Philippi to redefine how to have a summer of success in this life, in the life to come. Read with me in verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So here, here it is. Paul is giving us the Jesus definition of success. And it's completely counterintuitive to the definition the world offers. Worldly success is ensuring your own needs are met, that you are taken care of, your comfort is provided, and your name is known. Jesus is saying success is rather ensuring the needs of others are taken care of, and you wave the banner of everyone else around you and ultimately the name of Jesus. And he uses these words, have this mind among yourselves, again, referring to that unity piece, meaning because you are in Christ Jesus, you should think this way. And then he gives the example of how Jesus did this himself as a human. Paul is about to describe how Jesus executed the most amazing and successful rescue mission in the history of the world. And these verses were actually penned as a song or poem that was used as worship in the early church. Verses 5 through 11 is Paul's song to give worship to God. It stirs the hearts of followers of Jesus to exalt him, because it reminds us that Jesus is changing something within us that has been there since the beginning of time. A sinful nature. That from your conception, your flesh has screamed, me, mine. I have three kids, right? Six, three, and one. And as you have kids, you start to realize, I have no doubt in the total depravity of man. Because I didn't have to teach them how to say, give me. That's mine. No. Give it here. I never, it wasn't like we sat down and said, okay, this is how you get something from someone. You tell them that you want it. No. They learn that all by themselves. And that's in each and every single one of us. It comes out in very different ways, but it never goes away. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you, 
them, everyone else. This is radical because you have to understand that Jesus didn't need to redefine success for himself. Jesus wasn't in a spot where he had to, oh, I have to constantly remind myself that, yes, I'm God, but I need to serve other people. Jesus, he knew how to do that. He's giving us this example. Look at verse 6. It says, though he was in the form of God. Now, form's not a great translation. Um, In the Greek, it is morphe. And it's, it's a technical term. It's, it's really hard to translate into English, but a better definition would be an outward manifestation of an inward reality. And an illustration of that is uh, um, watching the Olympics right now, right? And uh, you can turn that on and, and you see these gymna- gymnastic routines that are happening at, you know, on the beams or on the floor. And um, the way you would say it is, you know, I watched the Olympics and the gymnast form was outstanding. What is meant is that the gymnast's swift, rhythmic grace and coordinated movements were an outward expression of their inward ability to perform the movements in an expert way. Jesus was in the form of God. He was morphe. And that word indicates a condition that began in the past and then continues into the present. Therefore, while on earth, the outward expression of his inmost being was the expression of the divine essence. Paul means that when the one who became Jesus, the word, came to earth to assume the form of man, he did not cease being God. Whereas schema is another word for form, but that's the form that changes. So think about when your morphe is human. You will be, you will always be human. But even thinking back about my kids, their schema is constantly changing. They're growing up. They're from baby to toddler to young man. I don't know what my six-year-old is right now. He's somewhere in between. He's constantly changing. But his morphe is who he is. And his humanness is coming out all all the time in an outward expression. And so here is Jesus with his morphe, theu. He was in the form of God. It helps us understand that Jesus is the manifestation of the real God. He's completely God, contains all the characteristics of God, meaning Jesus is self-sufficient. He does not need everything. He does not need anything. And that makes all the difference in Jesus' definition of success. Because... Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to hold tightly for personal gain, but emptied himself by taking the form, again, a morphe, not schema, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Meaning the the outward manifestation of God is not that of a ruler, a dictator, someone who lords it over you. It is of a servant. Your God wants to serve And Jesus is giving us that understanding as well. We have to understand in our theology that the Savior we just worshipped this morning came to earth and was fully human while remaining fully God. His schema changed to that of a human. But his morphe, his essence, who he is, is God. And not just any human, but came to be a servant coming as a baby, laid in a feeding trough to a young, poor couple on the wrong side of the tracks. And he did this because he wanted to show you something about the character of your God. 
the heart of God, the way to find success in your life, God says, it is found in serving others, not in yourself. What's another way we know this? We see this throughout Jesus' whole ministry. Time and time again, he chooses to take the position of a servant rather than that of a king, which he truly was. In John 13, we watch Jesus, hours before his ultimate sacrifice on the cross, see a need in the dirty feet of his disciples. And he rises from a place of honor at the dinner table and gets on his hands and knees like a servant to wash the feet of his disciples. And then he says to them this in John chapter 13, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So a choice we need to make to have a summer of success in this life and the next life, a successful life in general is this. I need to choose service over selfishness. I will choose service over selfishness. Success looks like service in the eyes of Jesus. And not just service, but sacrifice. Look back at Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I'm a, I'm a musician by uh, way of, you know, I grew up with music. I love the idea of music. I love what God has allowed me to do in terms of music. And songwriting has always been something that I've, I've strived in and wanted to do more of. And so I appreciate the idea that, that Paul is writing a song in verses 5 through 11. And I love how his boldness because most scholars will note that there's a cadence in the original language to what he is writing. It is in a certain form. And he breaks that cadence to say, even death on a cross. So he breaks out of the rules of normal poetry the way it would flow just to emphasize a point, to remind us that this is the Jesus who died on a cross. See, in that period of time and culture, Crucifixion was the most dishonorable, humiliating way to be killed. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. In fact, it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen for anything other than high treason against the Roman Empire. But notice that Paul notes that Jesus humbled himself. The cross may have been humiliating, but Jesus humbled himself. Throughout this last year, everything that has happened, I've heard people say over and over again, man, this last year was so humble. Like, I was so humbled this last year. I went through so many things, and I, I feel so humbled. And I get what they're trying to say. It's a nice way to say it, but rather we should just say it as we were humiliated. It has been a humiliating year and a half, feels like 20, right? Has anyone ever asked you for your most embarrassing story? This is like the best icebreaker, right? Like, hey, what's your most embarrassing story? I have a few. I'm not going to share them <laughs> this morning. But we love that idea because it reminds us of our humanity. It, it kind of connects us, like, because we've all been humiliated at some point in our life. And I think the, the thing that we struggle with is we don't like the idea of recognizing our own weakness, our own insufficiency. And the reason this, this past season has been so humiliating is because we look at all the advancements of humankind 
We look at everything that we're able to accomplish and then something we can't even see humiliates us. It reminds us that we're not infinite. We can die. We can be taken out. And that's really hard for us to grasp in a moment like that. And the whole world is struggling with the idea that we would be humiliated. And so we like to say it as, oh man, I feel so humbled. Oh man, oh, you're humiliated. Circumstances are humiliating, but only you can humble you, I heard a pastor say. The cross was a humiliating experience, but Jesus chose to be humble through it. And we can do the same in our lives. You can choose to be humble in your service, but it will require a sacrifice. See, the truth is not many of us would disagree that serving other people is a really good idea. We should serve others. It's just kind of like the golden rule. Do to others what you would want done to you. But where we kind of start to have an issue or a sticking point in our heart is when that service starts to require a sacrifice. When it costs me something that's close to me. The idea of serving starts to lose its luster when we realize, oh man, this is going to be really hard. I've been working on this with my kids a bit. Um, so my oldest, Mason, you know, we're just deep in the idea of selfishness in our house. And uh, recently, Mason, you know, we, bath time comes at you know, a certain time every night. Hey, everybody head upstairs. We're going to go do bath time. And no matter where Mason is in the house, he just goes into a dead sprint because he wants to be the first one up the stairs, right? It's not obedience. It's not like, oh, wow, he goes right away. No, there's still a fight of like, it's bath time. But once everyone else starts, once he hears his younger brother or his sister on the stairs, boom, it's on. Now it's a race. And there have been countless times where he has just laid out his brother or almost knocked his sister down the stairs just to be the one who arrives at the top stair first so he can declare, I won! I won! And so I had to, you know, after a few times of this, I, I pulled him aside and, you know, I'm a pastor's kid, right? So I said, hey, you know, Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so, I, you know, you're the oldest. I know you can beat your brother and sister, but the point is, like, serve them on the stairs. Like, let, help, them, help your younger sister get up there, and let's all get there the same. We're all going to the same place. Just because you got there first doesn't get you some prize. Right? And I explained this to him. And, you know, you just watch his little brain kind of process it and move through it. And then the next night, the next night he's on the stairs, and he's standing on the first step. Just at attention, he's and everyone to come up, go up first. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm crushing it right now as a dad. And I'm like, I'm so proud of you. And, uh, you know, so I'm the last one. And he's like, Father? And I'm like, okay. okay. And so I go up the stairs. And he rises on the top steps. And he goes, the first shall be last. And the last shall be first. I won. <laughs> no, that was not the point. <laughs> the point was not for you to somehow find the loophole of like, you're still the for, oh my gosh, it was so bad. See, serving is one thing, but sacrifice is another. He wasn't adhering to the idea because it was like, oh, let me sacrifice and I'll just give up my first place. No, he found a way to still be first in the language that I used with him. And I, I'm, I'm in that moment and I'm like, this is me. <laughs> this is my life. Like, yes, I'll serve, but is anyone going to recognize that I served? Is anyone going to say, hey, great job today? Yeah, I'll serve, but is it kind of like, I'll not, then I'll be the guy who does that thing for, you know, I'll be the guy who brings the meals. I'll be the guy who serves in kids' ministry. I'll, I'll be the guy who 
stacks the chairs, who cleans up after the event, whatever. As long as I'm known as that guy, yeah, then servant feels really good. See, maybe you sign up to serve, right? But only in this area because you know that the other area would require a little bit more work coming for some people. A little bit more work, a little bit more effort. I have to get up a little bit earlier. Maybe you're in a small group and your small group leader has mentioned several times, like, man, we just need more leaders. We need people to, like, step up and build and help. And you're like, yeah, but then, like, there'd be an expectation of, like, I'd have to come prepared. and I'll just keep showing up here. Maybe you see opportunities of, like, local, global missions, and you're like, man, that, that sounds like I could be a part of that, but I'm looking at the bank account and the budget, and where would I, what would I take out to, like, support them? And I'll put the card on my fridge, and when I go to get my food, I'll pray for them. Can I be honest with you? I'm preaching. I'm preaching myself right now. As a pastor who works for a church in full-time ministry, you know how hard it is to remind myself again and again that service requires a sacrifice, not a paycheck. Because I look at churches and the army of people it takes who work 40 plus hours a week and then give time to pour into a ministry and it reminds me, Brent, service requires a sacrifice. So here's the second point. I will pursue sacrifice over satisfaction. I will pursue sacrifice over satisfaction. Because if I want to serve like Jesus served, I have to serve with a sacrifice. So let's get practical for a second. Here's how we can practice this in our life. Three ways to serve sacrificially. Three ways to serve sacrificially. The first one is this, serve in secret. Matthew 6 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I need to hear this as much as you do right now. Everything you do doesn't need to be seen or heard. There's a quote that goes something like this. As soon as you start talking about how humble you are, you're not. The same is true about sacrificial service. If you serve and immediately start looking around to see who's noticed or can give you credit, or if you stop serving after a period of time because no one has seen you or give you credit, it is not sacrificial service. You think if no one had shown up to Jesus' crucifixion, he would be like, oh, forget this. Never mind. It's only like 10 people here. How, how often did Jesus drive away the crowds? It wasn't about who was there. It was about who was listening. Second thing is this. Serve difficult people. Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? 
For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to give back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We all know it's easy to serve people who we like, who have charismatic personalities, who will express gratitude, and will probably return the favor down the road. That's easy. But can we all agree that it's really hard to serve people who don't express gratitude or critiques, <laughs> critiques the way you're serving them? Or if you needed something, they're nowhere to be found. Man, but reminds me, I should tell my wife I love her more the way she serves my family and I'm constantly like, yeah, that was good but you could do it a little better. What? God bless my wife, her sacrificial service to me and our family. But Jesus says, it's easy to serve those who love you and do good to you. Even sinners, people who don't follow Jesus can do that. But the key to sacrificial service is serving difficult people. I just have an example of this. Uh, um, uh, about a year ago um, now in the summer at church working in the office and you know you get a call um, somebody just called the church office hey my, my car's dead I, you know I'm stuck at this place I'm supposed to be at work in 20 minutes is anybody there have a jump and it was a young lady who was a part of our young adult ministry at the church and so the young adults pastor comes to my office is like hey you want to take a ride I'm like yeah I got jumper cables in my car let's, let's go do this and so we show up, and we started interacting with this young girl, and just like stone-faced, like kind of acting like she's mad that we're there. And in your back, you're, you know, you're trying to like love her, Jesus, she like just started coming to the church, don't know where she's at in her walk with Christ, and so you're trying to be like really grace-filled, but just like every response, you're just getting like, yeah, whatever, dude, type of stuff. So we're asking her questions about the car, and she's kind of like looking at us like, I don't know. I'm like, okay, okay, you know, and you're plugging in the jumper cables, like, in the joy of the Lord, like, here we go, and, and you, know, you jump her car and get it started, send her on her way, and like, not even a thank you, just got in her car and left. And we get back in the car, and my flesh is just like, oh, never doing that again, like, oh, how dare she, who is this person, like, blah, blah. I just remember this young adults pastor, just like, so, he's a spirit-filled guy, and he was like, that was fun. I was like, were, you, were we at the same event that just happened? <laughs> That was the worst. Like, I don't ever want to help that person ever again. He goes, he's like, no, it's cool because she'll go to work and maybe down the road she'll tell somebody the story about how these people from church jumped her car and, you know, maybe God will spur something in her heart. And, and he just saw through. Like, we got to serve, man. Like, we were at work. This was work for us. We got to go help somebody. That was our job today. I'm like, forgive me, Lord that it's hard for me to serve difficult people, like what a blessing it is to serve, that you have given me the means, that you put those jumper cables in my car, that my car started when I turned the key, and I got to go help somebody who would have just sat there. Serve difficult people. Last one is this, serve when it hurts. Galatians 6, 2 through 3, 1, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's easy to serve people when things are going good in their life. 
and when things are going good in your life. Here's an example. Like, you, you know, you bring a meal to a family who just had a baby. Yeah, there's hard moments that come with, like, you know, infants. But the overwhelming joy of your celebrating the life of this child, it kind of, like, it makes it a little easier. Like, of course you want to bring them a meal. Hey, let me bless you. Like, oh, keeping you up at night? How much is he sleeping? You know, it's way, way harder when you go to bring a meal to the family who just had the stillborn. And you walk in, and there's no smiles. There's no joy. There's no jokes about how little sleep they're getting. The little sleep they're getting is because of the swollen, sunken eyes that don't know how to cry anymore. They're grateful for the meal, but it will probably go uneaten in their fridge because the appetite left the minute they saw that baby take its last breath. There's no baby to hold, so instead there's hugs with the mom and just whispers of, I'm so sorry. Just uh, a week ago, I got a call um, from one of our pastors, and he said, hey, um, his family in our church, um, her due date um, is Monday. This was a Saturday, and they went in and because um, the baby wasn't moving. And there's no heartbeat. Um, they lost, and she's, she's delivering right now. They just induced her. She's still living right now. Will you come with me to the hospital? And I'm like, I am not qualified for this, but yes. And um, no hospital visit is an enjoyable experience um, for a pastor in, in a context where you're helping guide through loss. But this, I just remember walking in, and... And the father greets us at the door, and, you know, we're just talking with him a little bit. And he says, have you ever seen a stillborn? And I say, no, I have not. And he's like, I just, I just want to prepare you. Like, um, and I say, you're preparing me? <laughs> like, don't prepare me, man. I'm here for you. And we walk through the door, and little, little Samuel is laying there. He's already with Jesus, but his, his body is still on earth, and we got to meet him, and we sit with the mom who um, they had prayed for this child for so long, you know, and they had a scare like two months in with like there might be something wrong with his brain, and they went through all these scenarios, and then, oh, we misread the scan. He's perfectly healthy and celebrating that, and they chose his name, and they, they didn't want his name to be Samuel. They didn't like it because they were afraid they were going to call him Sam or Sammy, <laughs> and but Samuel, the strength of the Lord, and God hears. And they're like, we had no idea how much we needed that to be his name. And so you're sitting in this moment, and just like, honestly, as a, as a pastor, like in sitting with someone in the hospital, we, you, I don't care how much training you've done in your life. I don't care how much uh, seminary degrees you have. No one knows how to handle that moment. You ask petty medical questions. You're like, are you guys eating? Can I get you a cup of coffee? You're just there. You just sit in that moment with them because you can't practically serve them in a way that will somehow fix or remedy the situation. It is what it is. And so we just sat there and we prayed and we sang hymns together and we prayed some more and we wept and at the end of it, you walk out of there and you're like, I did nothing. And I, 
I remember I get in the parking garage and I FaceTime my wife and my baby girl answers the phone. <laughs> I just bawl and I lose it. And she, Jen, Jen, my poor wife's like, what is going on? And I'm like, I, I just got out of the hospital. I just want to tell you that I love you and I'm so grateful for the blessings God has given us. But I don't know how to serve these people. It's hard right now. And led worship at the, at the funeral for them and come up and hug the mom and she just looks at me and she goes, thank you for serving us. And I'm, in that moment, I'm trying to just recollect everything. I've like, I haven't done anything, in it, but I was there. And so what I want to emphasize with this point is just that when it's hard, when you're in a season where things aren't easy and it, you don't really know what to do and it's going to hurt a little bit, and how it's going to be awkward and sad, and I, I can't relate. I've never been through that. Like, what am I? Serve when it hurts. Just be there. Pour yourself out. It might not be the, exactly that type of situation, but look for the moments when serving will hurt and step into them with the same mind of Christ who sweat drops of blood in the garden and begged God to remove the service that he was about to offer, but closed his prayer with, not my will, but yours be done, and then rose and walked confidently into the greatest act of sacrificial service ever done. And then this is how Paul closes his poem, his exaltation of, of Jesus Christ and the new definition of success we have discovered today, verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the capstone, the apex, the culmination, the grand finale of how Jesus redefined success in this life and on this earth. Because of his humility and willingness to sacrificially serve us by his death, it says that God has placed Jesus in the highest place of honor. The highest position with the highest name so that the whole world would look and see what success looks like. It's not the richest person in the world. It's not the most powerful leader. It's not the greatest entrepreneur. Not any of that, but a crucified Savior on a cross. It looks like Jesus on the cross. Success is Jesus on the cross. And then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that truth, either through salvation now or under condemnation later in all of it, every single part of it results in what? Glory to God the Father. So here's the last decision we need to make for a summer of success. I will desire God's supremacy over my status. The glory of God is the greatest motivation of every successful servant. Jesus did not come as a child and empty himself of all the benefits and privileges he is worthy of and willingly climb onto the cross to make the payment of sin for his own glory. He did it 
so that his Father would be glorified. And that glory comes through the salvation of God's people through the sacrifice of Jesus. Every time a sinner turns from their sin and repents and claims the blood of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb, God is glorified. The secret to success in eternity is surrendering to God's supremacy. It's taking everything you desire, your dreams, your goals, your status in this life, and laying it down and picking up the banner of Jesus to declare that his name is above every other name. He alone is worthy. He alone is holy. He alone gets the glory. Let that change your definition of success. And here's what I'll say as we close. There is a truth of Jesus did this perfectly, and we will not. But the beautiful thing is that we have the power of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit that walks with us and reminds us of these things. Are we choosing service over selfishness? Are we choosing sacrifice over satisfaction? And is the claim of our life about God's supremacy not our own status? And I love the picture of life being like a fire that we are walking through that is burning off the things that don't need to be there, but only if we cling to the Savior who has called us by his name. That Jesus is there with us. That there is grace in our life. That we will not get this perfectly, but I'm telling you, success in this life will look nothing like you can put on a spreadsheet or that someone can quantify. Rather, it is a heart condition that we must recognize. Am I a servant of Jesus? So I pray that would be our heart, every believer who follows Jesus, that we would desire Jesus overall. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of your word that reminds us again and again who you are. Thank you for the gift of Jesus who came not to fulfill his own desires, but rather that of his Father, as an example for us that we would live our lives in a similar way, that we would wake up every morning and decide, I'm going to follow Jesus today. And God, in the times when it's hard, when we don't know what to do, would you be right there with us, in the thick of it all, in the fire, walking us through, saying, I got you. I've given you the way to go. I died for you. I rose for you. So you would know lasting change. So God, give us grace as we pursue you. We give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.